Hello and welcome to episode five of the Dickheads podcast. My name is Rob Delves, and as always, I'm joined by Sean Jessamine and Damon Bednarski. Firstly, hello to you, Sean. How are you? Good, thank you, Rob. How are you? Yeah, mate. Uh, pretty good, pretty good, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. And uh, of course, we've got Damo up in Sydney. Damo, what's going on up there? There's a bit of rain about. Yeah, a bit wet up here. Um, Wash out the first weekend of games up here, so it's been um, a bit of a tough time for the girls and everyone who were excited to play, and then we missed out. So um, hopefully the, the weather's not looking too good this week either and weekend, so hopefully we get lucky and our game's not during uh, the pouring rain. It's no good, is it? So what's, what have you actually been doing then, Damo, to, to pass the time? Uh, well, we're pretty lucky. There's an indoor facility and some stuff around. So when it's rained, we've been able to go and train there. Uh, gyms. So we're lucky enough to use the GWS and New South Wales Rugby League gyms up here. So we've got access to them and then a bit of running here and there when we can get outside without it um, pissing rain. So, yeah. Um, but in, in the hub, uh, virtual golf, table tennis, there's been a lot of that going on. Um, perhaps a bit of the... Incorrect hydration's been happening a little bit amongst some oh, people, but oh, yeah. No. Oh, no. Not the old uh, sort of Swan Street sort of hydration, is it? Oh, here and there, it's, it's happening a little bit. <laughs> oh, and but the other the other contentious issue that uh, I've been made aware of is that you are a bowling off spinners, apparently, or, or bowling some offies in the nets at, at practice. Is that true? Yeah, all hands on deck at, at training at the Renegades. So, um, yeah, hitting catches, um, yeah, getting balls thrown at me, bowling on the dog stick, whatever is required. Um, Are you yeah. getting a bit of turn though, or what? Is there is a yeah, bit of movement? Yeah, no, no, there was there's a little bit of movement at the SCG. You know, it is a, t- a spinner's <laughs> wicket up there. So, um, yeah, just spinner right to left. Oh, that's good, mate. That's <laughs> that's outstanding. Uh, we might throw it back to Sean. As you can see, for those of you on the YouTube uh, looking at the screencast, I'm actually rocking the, uh, the Trix cap, which is uh, which is a new addition this week. Sean, have you got any update on on the merch at all? Well, the merch we do we do have some available uh, that we're we're looking to put an order in. So we've got looking to order some some tees, uh, some hoodies, and some crew neck jumpers. Um, so if you are interested at all, uh, message us on any of our social media platforms or get in touch with us, uh, one of us individually, if you like, and we can uh, get the ball rolling because we're going to be looking at putting an order in hopefully by next week. Outstanding. Uh, the crew neck is actually a really popular item that people have talked about. I didn't realise hmm. how much interest was uh, surrounding a crew neck, but there you go. Yeah, we, we didn't order one for ourselves, but we've we've had some uh, requests, so we've we've added that as an option. Outstanding. Very good. Uh, well, yeah, good, good stuff on that front, Sean. So hopefully we'll have some uh, some traction there and and some uh, production soon on the on the merch front. Uh, but an intro into our uh, into the current podcast. We'd uh, firstly just like to thank everyone for listening so far and, and tuning in. Really appreciate um, the the feedback we've got so far. It's um, really means a lot to us. So thanks for uh, listening in on. Uh, Spotify or Apple iTunes and uh, watching the screencast on YouTube. We appreciate that. Keep any comment or feedback coming. Uh, love to hear it and and try to um, incorporate some value where we can. So 
we uh, thank you very much. We also thank you for uh, tuning into TikTok. Uh, I've noticed there's been a bit of a spike in the views lately on, on the TikTok. I'm not sure why that is, but um, you know, another another stroke of genius from from yours truly, I think, boys. Or, Have you guys it, ever looked at the TikTok yet? I was going to say, does it count how many times you look at yourself on TikTok, <laughs> no, Rob? No, anyway, definitely not. Definitely not. But like, you, you guys wouldn't even look at it yet. No, you? Mate, I, don't, I don't even have the app on my phone, so I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't even know. It's all it's well, all just those, yeah. a fourteen year old audience that's that's laughing it up, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> no, well, so what I'm trying to do is, I'm, you know, Instagram have the reels um, feature as well now, so I'm trying to sort of double up on the content from TikTok into the reels as well, so you don't miss out if you don't have TikTok. You can you can see the uh, the highlight reel there on, on Instagram as well. So just uh, keep a lookout for that one <laughs> if you can. Well, that's not too bad, is it? That's a good that's a good little plug there, I reckon, Sean. What do you reckon? Yeah, no, pl- plenty of people have been asking about it, so <laughs> good, good to let them know. Oh well, if you can, if you want to, you know, give us a bit of a leg up with the, with the traction on TikTok, then please you know, have a look there at that forum. But there are pressing, more pressing issues as well um, before we get into this week's podcast, and that is the grand finals on the weekend. So maybe if uh, Damon and Sean can just maybe touch on what happened. Uh, over the weekend, I'm, I'm not too sure. But, Damo, what happened in the AFL Grand Final? Yeah, well, it was interesting. It was a pretty good game until uh, three-quarter time. Um, and then Geelong looked like they ran out of gas um, there late in the third quarter and definitely in the final quarter. Um, so, yeah, uh, the TIGs got up. So, three in, what is it, four years? Dusty mm. was doing it again. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a very... Um, eventful opening quarter with concussions and broken shoulders and all that happening. And then there's a couple of streakers and all sort of, yeah. all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, like it was all happening. If uh, um, people that haven't really watched the game before, if they were tuning in, um, it certainly was a lot going on. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And who did anyone correctly guess the, the Norm Smith and, and the team? The winning team as well, or not? Wow. Yeah, I yeah, told Rob, you to pick Dusty, so <laughs> yeah, 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 Rob, yeah, you, you really went out on a limb there, Rob, picking picking Dusty for North. I'll tell you what, I would have been I would have been pretty close with Mitch Duncan and Geelong had they won as well. So I wasn't yeah. too far off the mark. I actually put a bet on Mitch Duncan to win um, yeah. Norm Smith on the day. Yeah, I think I think he was like by far their best, and then maybe Brian Myers sort of popped up. He was pretty dangerous there as well in patches, so <laughs> he would have been around the mark. I'm sure. <laughs> But Sean, what happened in the NRL? What happened in the uh, the rugby league grand final? Uh, well, the the mighty storm. Uh, they came out mm. firing out of the blocks to come out to a twenty-two to nothing start at halftime, and then held off a uh, a gallant Penrith outfit who made a bit of a late charge but couldn't quite uh, get there. So uh, congratulations to you, Rob, as a m- member yeah. of the uh, the Melbourne Storm. Yeah, it's outstanding. It was outstanding to watch it, and uh, yeah, just a just a good feeling to be honest. Um, that's my first in like premiership involvement with the club. Um, I think we uh, talked about it in the last podcast, missed out in 2018. So, yeah, outstanding. Great feeling, great performance by the boys. But I think we good. also need to congratulate Damo because I think he picked the uh, Clive Churchill winner in the last podcast. Is that right, Damo? Yeah, Storm and Pappy. Very good. And but there's also, I do believe, and I heard this from my uh, housemate that, um, Sportsbet may have paid out on Cameron Smith yeah. actually winning uh, yeah, they the did at, 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 at half time, yeah. <laughs> oh, which is uh, 
it's a bit unfortunate, really. Like going the early crow and then paying out on that, that's unbelievable. Sorry, my question for you, Rob, is have you had a phone call from the Cheese or Munster in the last couple of days? <laughs> no, I think I think a few Sydney journos might have, but um, no, no, nothing on my end, which is probably uh, probably fortunate, I'd say. I think you'd need a uh, Spanish dictionary to understand <laughs> the stuff that they've been saying. <laughs> Wouldn't mind a pair of the ski goggles that are going around, though. They look pretty good, so they're not too bad. Anyway, look, that's probably enough talk about uh, about the uh, about the happenings on the weekend. Maybe we should get stuck into this uh, this week's podcast. And I'm pleased to announce that the topic is sports science myth busting. So if you've ever watched uh, SBS, you know you might have seen those two old blokes, the Mythbusters, uh, go around and, and try to few uh, try to prove a few myths, you know, factual or inaccurate or whatnot. This is what we want to do in this episode of. Uh, of the podcast because when you say sports science to people, there's a lot of connotations associated with that. And there's a few, um, a few myths that we sort of want to bust in this, uh, in this podcast. So Sean and Damo, where do, where does the typical myths surrounding sports science come from? Do we think? I just think there's a bit of a lack of understanding of what a sports scientist is I know that when 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 we're at uni and you know you speak to friends or family members and you tell them that you're studying sports science at uni, the, the very next question you get is, so what like what do you get out of that? What what kind of job do you get out of that? And so and it's kind of hard because there's so many different paths you can take, but I think it all comes back to there's not really a like everyone knows what a PT is, everyone sort of knows what a physio is, but a sports scientist because it's such a new thing that's sort of only really come to light and um, the role of a sports scientist in elite sport has really risen in popularity the last sort of 10, 20 years. Um, so there's just probably a lack of lack of understanding about what the actual role entails. Yeah, I, I think that it's because it's not really a clear role and I think a lot of job descriptions in the area combine multiple things into one and just say sports scientist as the, the job title. So um, most people would know what a strength and conditioning coach is. So they're, you know, look after running and gym um, based training at a club. But then what comes on top of it is that they actually look at, you know, GPS data and interpret that to use their programming and stuff like that. So that's when that science component comes into it and they just chuck the title of sports scientist in there um, because, you know, that they're using data and analyzing and doing interpretation. Um, so I think that's where it get, gets confused, you know, like even in my current role here with the Renegades, I'm a strength and conditioning coach, but you're still looking at data um, and doing those things. So my role isn't sports scientist, but it, it has those components of sports science, which is, you know, performance analysis, data interpretation. We are scientists. We're using figures and numbers to, um, you know, design our programs. And I think that's, yeah, the thing that people probably get confused with the most is that it's when you piece all of those different areas together, um, the job title that the industry has given it is sports scientist, but you might actually specialize in a particular area. So Rob's a performance analyst, but that falls under the sports science banner as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that, like that's, and that's a good point though, is that you say that it's just basically a uh, overarching term really for a multitude of different things. And 
And what you said there, you mentioned the word scientist, and I think that leads into the next point as well, is that there might also be a negative stigma associated with the term sports science and sports scientists. Now, I think we all know where that stems from. So maybe if we want to briefly touch on the origins surrounding that stigma that, that people hear or people associate with sports scientists when the word is used. Yeah, I guess when you, when you think of scientists, you think of um, someone in a white lab coat in a laboratory with test tubes and all that sort of stuff. So, um, I mean, by all means, there are sports scientists that perhaps are in a lab setting, um, but I can probably guarantee that they're not wearing a lab coat um, when they're doing it. And mm. it's certainly not that sort of level of science. So, like, we're all sports scientists we're all got the accreditation um so we do the same thing but our science is you know we go out and collect heart rate data or you know running speeds and that sort of stuff and we interpret that information we're not we're not in a lab setting we're out on a field generally um and obviously the job as a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach is that you need to have people skills so um it's not that we're standing there with a clipboard and going you know tick and not speaking to people um, you're actually interacting with them and making that um, experience enjoyable for them. So I think that's one thing is that when you think of scientist or doctor, you think of that, you know, um, lab coat, clipboard, very little communication, whereas it's very much the opposite. The, the science and the data stuff that we do, that's what you do outside of hours when players and athletes aren't actually there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where, so, Sean, do you maybe want to touch on maybe the historical origins then of particular events that have happened in years gone by? Yeah, so I suppose it was about seven or so years ago now that a lot of the the drug scandals in both AFL and NRL sort of came to light. Um, Stephen Dank is probably a familiar name to to people who follow both sports because he had a role in in both Essendon and Cronulla that got that got caught up in it. And I think ever sort of ever since then. The, there's been that perception that maybe that sports scientists can be a little bit shady or they sort of push the boundaries a little bit mm. um, and they're doing all these sort of elaborate sort of testing methods and injecting people with all, with with who knows what, um, mm. which I would like to think was an anomaly back then um, and it would certainly be an anomaly now because the standards have gotten a lot higher. You have to be registered as a sports scientist with the with the accrediting body just to work in an elite club. And there are a lot of boxes to tick to get that accreditation, whether it be a university degree or hours in the field. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's essentially, so what you've just said then, that's essentially the stigma from there, isn't it? So that sports science backroom sort of operations with the injectables and all that sort of stuff. That's what the white coat, the lab coat stigma is all about. That's that yeah. particular aspect. And that's what everybody is um, associating with that term sports science, isn't it? That's what yeah. that's essentially where that comes from, isn't it? I think it sort of comes, at, yeah, a little bit from um, cycling as well because there's so much doping mm. that happens in that sport um, and you sort of think that the, the sort of the roles or how that comes to be in cycling mm. sort of that gets a bit blurred, mm. a bit blurred there. I, I think that's one thing too, whereas it's a bit blurred is that like as a sports scientist, our role, we can advise on supplements and thing like things like that, but it's not actually really part of our scope of practice to actually provide that. So that's normally either the club doctor or, um, you know, the 
dietitian or nutritionist that's going to yep. give supplements and those sorts of things. So I think that's where, um, because there wasn't a scope of practice at the time, because there was no accreditation required to be a sports scientist is where it's been dumped on that. But we, there's no thing that we do as sports scientists that have graduated we, recently that we perform injections or anything like that mm. like that's that's not inside our scope of practice so that that's where the media and that has put it on one person who was acting well outside of their scope of practice and doing things that you know we're not actually trained to do yeah that's a good and that's a that's a good point there Dana, as well is that, that i think that's a good term is that scope of practice that you talked about like definitely now in sports science and and Dana was talking about supplements you definitely have access to and encouraged to do WADA and ASADA training as well. And so in terms of like, you know, supplementations that probably aren't injectable in terms of like, you know, your protein and all that sort of stuff. So there are uh, curriculum around that um, to sort of help safeguard those events from, from happening again. But it probably leads into our first myth that we want to bust in this podcast. And that is that sports scientists and SNC coaches are effectively overqualified personal trainers. So can we bust this myth, boys? Yeah, well, I suppose that there are some similarities within the roles, but there's also quite a few differences. Um, so the main one's probably going to be the just the clients that um, that each each person would work with. So personal trainers are more going to be working with general population people, so just your everyday everyday person, whereas strength and conditioning coaches typically, not all the time, but typically will be working with some some form of athlete. Um, this could be elite, this could be sort of sub-elite or amateur, um, where, where the main goal is going to be to improve some sort of sporting performance. So the personal trainer, they're probably most of the time going to be helping people change body composition, whereas a strength and conditioning coach, you know, you might be work, looking at improving someone's strength and speed, their power, their agility, um, helping them recover, and that's all or doing all those things typically at the same time as opposed to just focusing on one of those physical qualities. Absolutely. And then is there a qualification difference between the two as well at the, like at the basic level? Yeah, there's a, there's a huge difference. So um, like obviously undergraduate sports science degrees, three years, um, you know, 24 different subjects at, well, at Deakin, it was 24 different subjects. So you're getting a wide variety of um, skills and knowledge, whereas a PT course can be done sort of in six weeks at, at a TAFE Institute or online Institute. Um, so that, there's a big difference there. And I, I guess touching on what Sean was um, talking about is that also when you're in a university degree, you get exposed to how to coach and train all population groups so we they cover things like that so how to work with the elderly um, because a lot of people actually then go into exercise physiology from an exercise mm. and sports science degree so um, obviously we've gone down the more elite sport strength and conditioning sports science pathway but a lot of people that we went to uni with have gone down the other pathway which is into exercise physiology so I'm pretty sure all of us majored in exercise physiology within our bachelor degrees yeah yeah, so we, we all sort of have that understanding of how to coach for athletes, but then we also understand the other population groups as well and have spent time on actually doing that. Um, I think as well as that, we've then also done the sports science-based stuff. So 
um, data analysis, um, lab-based stuff, whereas the PT is solely about coaching and, and instructing exercise. There's no none of that science and analysis behind it. So, yeah, um, it's certainly um, two very different roles. Um, and obviously, you, you could be a PT and work your way up and end up in high-performance sport, um, but you're not going to have the skills and experience in those other components of the science-based stuff that you're going to have to do in one of those roles. Obviously you can pick it up along the way, but um, it's obviously a lot more useful learning it at uni so that you've got it under your belt by the time you start looking for roles in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Damo uh, touched on a good point there about exercise physiology as well, as that is a, a stream that you know, sports science can go down and specialize in. And we talked about it briefly as well in terms of, Sports scientists can look at things like data analytics, performance analysis. So essentially that term sports science isn't necessarily associated with just the conditioning and athlete preparation. There's a lot of different technologically based roles surrounding that as well. So that's, they sort of get clumped together, but obviously there's a bit more scope to it within that role. So I think that myth is, is busted as a boys. You, you concur with that, you reckon? Yeah, I think like the as well, like the in terms of the actual qualification, like we've spent all three of us a minimum of three years at uni and, and then a little bit extra as well. And I think um, I certainly feel like I don't know everything still. And there's, and then you look at a personal training course and it might only go for six, eight, 12 weeks. Um, so not to be up on my high horse too much, but I know that if I was, trying to hire someone to help me look after my body who who i'd be choosing because i just don't think you can get necessary knowledge in or the necessary practice into to be in a position to to influence someone um safely and effectively and that's not to say that all personal trainers are shit because there's just like any profession there's there's good personal trainers out there and there's, there's some poor ones just like there's some good strength and conditioning coaches or sports scientists and some bad strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and I think the standard's getting a little bit better. I think a lot of PTs are starting to do some more in-depth education and are trying to sort of prioritise that education a bit more, but it's it's always a bit of a slippery slope when you can call yourself a personal trainer, but you've only done a 12-week course that's online. Yeah, good stuff. Well, I reckon that one's busted, boys. Sweet. Bang, with that. busted. Let's go. <laughs> All right, so myth two, and this, this is one that you get, particularly in the AFL, is that sports scientists want to manage athletes as much as possible, i.e. bring them on the bench every two minutes. Now, this one has got a bit of a popular commentary surrounding it, particularly from some AFL commentators. Do we want to go into what this means, boys? What does this myth actually mean? What's it talking about? Some commentators, particularly the older ones who have grown up in a different generation, they don't see the value in some of the sort of the sports science practices and they think that sports scientists are just meddling and trying to get their hands on everything and trying to make themselves feel good and be involved, which um, I think with some things probably does have a bit of merit, but for the most part, um, I think it's a little bit, a little bit unfounded and the, the, the game certainly developed over the last sort of 30, 40 years. Um, compared to what it compared to what it was, it's a lot more faster and high paced, and the athletes are a lot stronger and stronger mm. and faster. So I think the main thing that it comes from is the 
what you touched on, Rob, that the, the commentators, they seem to think that some players get stuck on the bench or there's some, some sort of computer on the bench that starts lighting up and beeping when, when a player should come off the ground, which they certainly keep track of the time that a player spends on the ground, but it's not so regimented that it can't be adjusted. Yeah, you, you make a fantastic point about it's all about the intensity of the game. So full forwards no longer stand in the goal square and get it kicked on their head and run, mm. you know, a 30 meter lead. It was all one-on-one footy back in the day, whereas now it's all zonal, it's all moving. So the intensity of the game is just so, so much greater that it's not possible for players to run and play at that intensity without going on the bench. Um, so that's just, they have to just accept that that's the fact. And, and as you say that because, um, they're wearing a GPS and they're being tracked doesn't mean that there would never be a coach that would go, all right, um, Dustin Martin's been on the field for 43 minutes. We said he could only play 43 and a half, go get him off. But that, that's, that's not how it works. Um, obviously if he needs a rest, they'll, they'll either, rotate him into the forward line to give him a rest or take him off if it's, if it's possible and then get him back on the ground as quickly as possible. Um, sometimes the game doesn't allow for it if the ball's on the other side or whatever. So that's just parts of the game that um, happens. But it's not as if so- someone on the bench, and I can attest to that, is that um, the coach would tell you to piss off if you told them that they had to come off because they've hit mm. their high speed meters or something. Like you, you, you may as well pack up your bag and quit your job on the spot there because they, they really would not let that happen. So um, I think the other one is said commentator, I think they were talking about was not too happy with uh, players being told that they can't kick at goal after training for certain um, mm. amounts of time. Yes. Does anyone this, else have anything to yeah. add, add to that? Well, I don't think I'll, I think we we're all alluding to the same person really, but none of us really want to say who it is. Um, but what? Okay, so this one actually annoys me as well, but it annoys me for a different reason because I I'm not sure. Like I've never worked in AFL club, so I don't know. So you blokes probably know a bit more than I do. But if you're a forward and you're kicking goals after training, and someone's putting a limit on that, I'd be a bit frustrated by that, and I can see why you'd be frustrated by that. But then. From a sports science point of view, I understand why people would want to minimise the load. But, yeah, so this one, I can see why some commentators would be frustrated, particularly when goal uh, scoring and the accuracy around that is heavily um, criticised in this modern game. So that one, I definitely sympathise with said commentators' feelings behind that. I think um, <laughs> from just from my own experience with different levels of footy clubs, I've... I personally have never seen someone or a player be told, hey, you've got to stop kicking the ball. Mm. I've been at clubs where they've sort of generally tracked the amount of kicks that a player might have because so the issue, the issue it all starts with um, that essentially with, with kicking sports, there can be some overuse injuries, particularly at the groin. Um, it's not really as common nowadays, but you might have heard of it back in the day osteitis pubis was a was a big one and it was a big overuse injury that stems from too much kicking essentially so i think sports scientists tried to come in and say well hey let's stop kicking as much and they tried to put these limits on but i personally have never seen someone pulled off the track the only reason i've seen someone pulled off the track is because they've been out there too long and they've got other stuff to do 
inside like gym or meetings or or stuff i've never seen someone pulled off because they've been kicking too much so i'm not saying it's never happened because i'm sure it has but i think nowadays it's probably a little bit better where if you if players want to do some extra goal kicking or some extra skills after training by all means do it but don't be out there for an hour when you've just had a two-hour training session either Mm, i i agree like i 100 it's there's obviously reasons for why they may have been doing it at the time but then um i like the correlation between that and osteitis pubis i think was quite hard to actually match up that that was what was causing it so um you know that's one instance where you're trying to find an answer to something that we don't completely understand um and from my experience in, in cricket um this is one that gets a bit of attention on the media as well during test matches, how they're resting players because of bowling loads and all that sort of stuff. There's a little bit more data behind that to show that, you know, um, bowling loads go through the roof, that players are at a much heightened risk of injury. So they've, they've got data there to show that, okay, um, this is sort of the window for what, bowling loads players should be doing now again former test cricketers and stuff like that say that you know this is absolute crap because back in our day we played every game and we did that but things are a little bit different now too because of the volume of cricket that's being played so you think about an international cricketer now they play 2020s one day as and tests and they're playing you know most of the year so it's not like they just play five tests and then have the rest of the year off or you know wait until the next series they actually then going into multiple series. So again, that's probably why um, it needs to be managed a little bit better. It's not because back in the day, you know, they were just better. It's just that there's more volume of cricket and it's the same. The intensity of footy has gone up, the volume of cricket's gone up. So you need to manage it somehow. Um, so from those point of views, yeah, but from the footy kicking thing, I think that's definitely a myth, but from the, you know, load and the GPS monitoring and stuff like that, that, does have a place in the game um, but obviously we don't rip them off the ground because of that that's the case and it's same with a fast bowler you know we're not going to stop Mitchell Johnson in the middle of a red hot spell against the Poms and say oh no no he's hit his bowling load like take him off like he's still going to keep bowling you'll just um, deal with the repercussions later on. I think a lot of these sports scientists as well um, the they're trying to ensure that players or they're trying to manage loads so the players are actually out on the park because now with elite sport there's so much money put into it um, just in terms of their salaries that they're paid that if if they're injured and sitting on the sidelines and it's essentially money just going to waste so those higher up the sort of the presidents and the ceos are going to be looking at um if your players are injured the first person they're asking questions to is the performance team and why they're not out there um, and a lot of the time you probably, I don't know if you've heard it before, but some people say the best ability is availability. Not bad. See, that's another quote. It's, yeah. it's only yeah. taken you, like, I think you put the quotes away for a couple of episodes there, Sean, but good They're to back. see you've... Uh, the quotes are back. Made, made, a, yeah, made, a good, made a good quote there. Uh, but yeah. I think you're right. There is that, there definitely is that final, financial aspect uh, surrounding you know, how much money is invested in players and the commercial... Um, the commercial considerations that uh, around elite sports people as well, and then their availability on the park. Like I know the NBA, like the Spurs, um, are not necessarily notorious for resting their players, but it's something that they have looked um, looked to do during the season, and that's met with some backlash from people who have more commercial interests because obviously they want the best players playing, and 
that's good for revenue around that. So there's there's a whole different range of financial and incentives and commercial incentives around player availability and and trying to manage that as well. So it's definitely definitely a delicate um, tightrope that um, sports scientists and SNCs have to walk. To. I, I agree on that front as well. Like you know, from our position as being in the performance departments as well, it's something that. Um, is generally in your job description or your KPIs each season is, you know, um, injury rates or player availability and that sort of stuff. So it's not to say that the staff in those departments aren't concerned about it, like their jobs are on the line with these sorts of things as well. Mm. So that's where there's pressure on them as well. Um, and they are always trying to get the best players on the park. And I, I, as Sean said, you know, like um, you've got a better chance of winning as a team if you've got your best players available. Um, so I think it's sort of one thing where um, Leicester City was a big thing in the Premier League. Um, if you look back at the stats for that year, um, which later on there has been some investigation into some questionable sports science actions there, um, that they actually had the mo- their first starting 11 was available for the majority of the season. I believe they only used... 13 or 14 different players, which for a Premier League season, so that means that, you know, you've only got 11 players on the field. They've only used three different players outside that squad. So if your best 11 are always available, you've got a better chance of winning. And they, they did win the league that year. So um, that's, you know, it shows that how important it is to have those valuable, best performing players on the park um, at, at all times. Um, so I think that myth may be busted. Um, boys on, on that front and so now we'll move into we'll briefly touch on this myth because we have discussed it earlier but the third myth is that sports scientists are white coat lab rats that don't like asada can we talk about that a bit more all right well i certainly wouldn't say that we don't like asada um <laughs> i mean i think the issue was that there was no uh integration between the two parties prior to uh, the Stephen Dank issue, obviously it was something that you're aware of, but um, I don't think there was anything that was forcing people to actually follow their rules if they didn't want to, um, because there was not a, you know, we're all part members with ESSA where you have to, to be a sports scientist, you have to be accredited with them. So part of your compliance is that you do have to do your yearly ASADA um, course and make sure that you're up to date with all that sort of stuff. So um, we certainly don't hate ASADA. <laughs> We're not advocating uh, for, for drug cheating over here at Triax. No. no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I think that's that's the classic stigma surrounding sports science, isn't it? That's the one. That that's where it all stems from is that that supplement scandal and, and the things surrounding that. Because never nobody had heard the term sports scientist before that. Yeah. And then you, you hear terms of sports scientist and then the weapon and all these different <laughs> sort of nicknames and, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's um, that's something I think we've busted uh, in the opening discussion. But, yeah, definitely uh, sports science aren't your uh, mad Soviet scientists in the back room. Busted. Bang. So, yeah, busted. There you go. Well done, Sean. Have you got a quote for that one, Sean? Or you just no, I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so then our penultimate myth is that sports scientists are data geeks. So this is a bit of an interesting one. I think this is the hybrid of... Uh, the sports science term, um, essentially probably a negative connotation with that overarching sports science term, um, and particularly data analysis. So I actually might kick this one off because I think it's probably a bit more close to home for me than this for you two boys. But 
Um, essentially, data is, particularly in this world, I think data is a massive component for most jobs now, like particularly commercially, businesses, you know, finance, it's, it's a data-driven world. And, and looking at sport um, is no different, uh, essentially. So sports scientists and S&C or strength and conditioning coaches, they're essentially using Excel and, and R Studio or R now as well to handle all of their data. So it's nothing new, essentially, that um, sports scientists like handle, handle data. But the actual geek thing, I think, comes from maybe the movie Moneyball. I think that we've got these essentially data scientists or computer programmers who have a lot of knowledge around information technology and, and the surrounding analytics around that. I think that's where the misconception starts from. So there's, that's, that's essentially two worlds colliding there in terms of data analytics and sports. So it's not necessarily what you see in uh, seeing Moneyball where you try to predict and, and do all that sort of stuff. There obviously is elements of that, but, um, again, a sports scientist, there's so many different things that obviously data is, is a part of it, but by no means are um, sports scientists essentially consumed by big data and, and the analytics around that. Not sure what your thoughts are for that, boys. I think um, yeah. the a lot of the data and analytics stuff that you said is pretty big in baseball over in America and depending on who you yeah. ask, it's either made the game better or particularly for the traditionalists of, of baseball, it's sort of made it a little bit worse. Um, but I think depending on the situation, data is data certainly helps and it helps to paint a picture, but I don't think you can put all your eggs into into the data and the numbers basket because a lot of the times they can be a bit misrepresented and they don't provide much context. Um, so mm. I think you can they can certainly help you make decisions, but they shouldn't guide your your decision making because it just doesn't take into account sort of human behavior and variances between um between people and within people and that's yeah so i think you see a lot of that sometimes with the the telstra tracker stuff on the the afl and the nrl with the gps data they'll sometimes Ooh. show show some some speed metrics or some some distance metrics mm. and um i think they get a little bit misrepresented sometimes by commentators and fans because they don't quite tell the whole story and you can't sort of, you sort of got to take them with a bit of a grain of salt because even though they say one thing, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. If that makes sense. And that's a great, that's a great point, Sean. And there is a blog surrounding that particular GPS data. And there's also a TikTok surrounding that <laughs> very instance. So if you want to have a look at that, just go check it out. Give it a couple of likes, bump it up. There you go. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 th might, I think, Samo, you'll, you'll, uh, I think that you'll probably um, agree that the data is probably inevitable when you work um, with humans in terms of the things that we measure. So working with heart rate and GPS, you have to use data in that instance, don't you? Like it's inevitable. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, the type of, data that I'm working with is pretty basic sort of stuff that you can do on Excel. So um, I'm not on like anything too complicated and it's very simple sort of um, formulas and stuff on Excel, but you know, most people, if they YouTube it, they'd be able to figure out how to do what you're doing. So it's not complicated stuff. It's more just looking at what the numbers are telling you. And then sort of from a strength and conditioning perspective, using that information to program sessions for your athletes that are match up to what, they're capable of doing 
Um, but I think the most important thing with it is, is, is how you present the data. So um, you might be collecting, you know, if you've got GPS units, like thousands of points of data, um, but it's about presenting what's relevant. So if you're making a report for a player or a coach, you're not giving them a spreadsheet with, you know, 15,000 numbers in there. You just give them the key stats and figures that they want to see and in a way that it's easy to analyse. So that might be some graphs and, you know, different tables and things like that, which is, you know, quite part of our job is about the visualisation side of things um, as well. But I think the one thing, um, a bit of a quote, but it's um, paralysis from analysis. So you can... Um, spend hours doing it and you can give all the information to the players but it um, the, and coaches they've got no idea what to do with it so it does come back to that how you actually present it and give it to them is is how valuable the data is um, that's the most important thing if they get some value out of it then it's good other coaches will get zero value out of it so there's no point presenting it to them you can just use it how you need to use it Oh, I think uh, I think that myth is busted then that all sports scientists are not necessarily data geeks boys Busted. Oh, lovely. Busted. All right, so this is the, okay, the last one. This is And this is an old-timer. This is um, like a, the subject of much conjecture. You have to be ripped to be a strength and conditioning coach. Is that a myth, boys? You I have to be ripped and shredded, brah. I think there's, there's an element of truth to this one. But not so, to the degree of shredded. That, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm getting at. There's an element of truth to it. So I think that for any... Uh, sort of strength and conditioning coach or fitness coach or sports scientist, you need to be able to walk the walk and train in a similar way to your athletes. So I think that just allows you to, to sort of put yourself in your athlete's shoes and sort of understand their thought processes when they're, when they've pulled up sore or when they're feeling shit in the gym or when they're pushing through that last sort of couple hundred meters of a, of a 2k time trial and they sort of their their legs are feeling like jelly so i think that you have a deeper understanding of sort of what's going on inside their head um and i think it, it sort of just makes you a better coach because you can sort of relate to them a bit more yeah i think aesthetically that's the thing that's probably the misconception is that um you don't have to be yeah as you say shredded and cut and whatever you want to say in terms of those things it's more that as Shawnee probably said you need to practice what you preach so you need mm. to have an understanding of how an athlete will feel when doing particular things you don't have to run as quick as them lift as heavy as them but you just need to understand um you know if you did the same session as them at a relative level to your own personal fitness you'd be able to do that so that you can actually go yeah okay and even from as a good coach, you should be able to um, demonstrate and um, yep. instruct an exercise. So if you can't actually demonstrate it um, to a good degree, then you can't, in some instances, coach it because the athlete doesn't know what to mm. do visually because some people are visual learners. So, um, yeah, it's certainly very important. But when people put up these posts on social media and say that, you know, they would hire someone else because they're, you know, they look fitter, but, you know, you may not necessarily look fit and built and whatever, but you can still lift weights well and still do running sessions. Then that's perfectly fine. I think, um, yeah, it certainly shouldn't come down to appearance, but no. you do need to be able to practice what you preach. That, that's, and that's a great point as well, is that if you're an S&C coach and you want to train for a marathon, like you're not necessarily going to look like you're uh, ripped and you're muscular, are you? But you still might have 
outstanding practical knowledge and, and ability to demonstrate whatever movement you want. So yeah. it's a great point at appearance, although the other end of the scale is if you rock up and train overweight or you're, you know, if you're like noticeably overweight, then that also may not work in your favour either as well. And that's unfortunately just human nature, isn't it? But I do have one anecdote on this topic. Uh, I'm not going to mention any names or whatnot. I'm not going to mention any sports, none of that. So it's purely confidential. But I was involved with an organisation, a team, a collective group of people that very uh, secretive here, Rob. Yes, very secretive. <laughs> that because uh, this is just outstanding, and I was doing a bit of work with this collective group of individual athletes or team sport athletes or organisation. And the coach, the coach actually um, rocked up 15 minutes before training with a KFC box and sat Ooh. on the bench of the facility and ate it whilst they were warming up. So, again, <laughs> that's probably not great. Um, I dare say the chicken smelled outstanding. But, again, time and place. This, this isn't a personal story of yours, Rob. Is I know you like to no, partake in, in the KFC occasionally. No, no, it's definitely I, I not think mine. This is a new segment we need the uh, the Triax files where you yeah, sense what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> yes, I'm not mentioning any names or any sports surrounding that, but definitely a true story. Yeah. I think that um, like, so- if, you're, if you're considerably overweight or you just look out of shape mm. in general, it's going to be hard from the outset for some athletes to potentially take you seriously and you can always you can always interact with with the athletes and build build relationships with them so that they trust you and they trust that you know what you're doing but it just might be a bigger uphill battle if their first impression Mm. of you is that you look like a like a bit of a bit of a slob or you've you don't look like you um take pride in in what you do so um as rob as you said it's a bit it's a bit um vain and a bit judgmental but it's human nature as you said and there's nothing we can really do to change that but what we can change Mm. is the position that we sort of put ourselves in from the get-go because while being shredded or ripped it's not gonna it doesn't automatically make you a good strength and conditioning coach um you need a lot more sort of technical knowledge and interpersonal skills to excel in that. Um, but it's sort of a bit of a bit of a juggling act, I suppose, where you sort of got to meet it in the middle where you can't rock up overweight, but just because you are in good shape and um, that doesn't make you make you a good coach. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, that's the other thing. If, you, if you're ripped and shredded as well, you may have just trained for that purely for five years or whatever. You might not even have any idea of other techniques. You might not be a good yeah. speed coach power coach, strength coach, you might just be doing hypertrophy, you might be good with your diet and all that sort of stuff. But that's still like, that's a minor piece of the puzzle in terms of overall athletic development, isn't it? So don't necessarily be fooled by an image as well, but obviously if you want to enhance your credibility, then by all means, you know, a picture paints a thousand words. So uh, it's in your best interest to present yourself as best as you can. But I think that's that myth busted, boys, the final one, the fifth and final. Busted. busted. Very good. Myth busting. All right. So, yeah, it's a good one, actually. Um, pretty good. Not necessarily Bermuda Triangle sort of stuff and whether people have actually <laughs> escaped from Alcatraz, but, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good, I think. Um, so, we might, um, we might wrap it up there, boys. My final or penultimate plug is have a look at Sean's core video on YouTube. 
pump it up, give it some likes. He's been dying. He, he keeps messaging me, mate. It's like, mate, make sure you pump it up in the podcast. Make sure you pump it up. So there you go, mate. Um, and then while you're at it, have a look at TikTok as well, just to see some of my uh, some of my handiwork on there. Uh, but thank you to everyone who, on a serious note, thank you to everyone who has tuned in, subscribed, and liked uh, all our content so far. Really appreciate it. Um, really enjoy actually bringing it to everyone and. And thank everybody for your feedback so far. So if you can comment, like, subscribe on the various forums on iTunes, uh, YouTube and Spotify, that would be sensational. If you have any questions or comments or any potential ideas for future podcasts, please let us know and get in touch with us. Um, we welcome your feedback and and uh, want to hear anything you want to say. And if you've got any questions as well that you want us to cover, then just message us. I'm happy to do that as well. But for those uh, who want to get in touch with us, uh, Sean, how they do that via social media? Uh, if you search for Triax Performance on our, either Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you will you'll find us on there. As Rob said, if you've got any, what's that face? You're missing one, mate. You're missing one again. What, <laughs> what what's the other form you're missing? TikTok. The TikTok. Well, mate, you yeah. just plug you just plug the hell out of it. So I'm sorry for for uh, scratching over it there. <laughs> anyway, as, yeah. as as I was saying, uh, if you if you do have any questions or um, if you are interested in any of the the clothing or the merch that we have have available, tees, crew neck jumpers, uh, hoodies, and we do have some caps available as well. Uh, if you're interested in them, let us know. Good stuff. And Damo, if people want to get in contact to us more formally in terms of email on the website, how do they do that? Yep. So we've got admin at triaxperformance.com and at triaxperformance.com if you want to check out the website. Good stuff. Outstanding. And uh, well, I think that might do us there. So thank you for tuning in this episode and we look forward to speaking to you next time where hopefully Damo would have actually seen some cricket. <laughs>